Hello, friends. This is Nikki Toyamasito, the Executive Director of Christians for Social Action, and your host for 20 Minute Takes. This week, we talk with Prashan DeVisser. He's the founder and president of Global Unites and the author of Phoenix Generation. We talk about his work in Sri Lanka, working with youth to transform conflict into peace building, as well as his insights about a new way that we can have a political imagination. Join us on this episode. Thank you so much for joining us here today on 20 Minute Takes. My pleasure. You know, Sri Lanka is a country that has a history of um, establishing its own independence, a history of civil war, and some ethnic and uh, and religious clashes. Um, and it's in this context that you created Sri Lanka Unites. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was of doing peace building within the Sri Lankan context that informs what you do globally under Global Unites? Uh, that's a great question. So Sri Lanka Unites came out of the civil war that we were born into, uh, looking at the conflict, the prejudice, and the hate uh, that we saw growing up. Um, and we you know, started asking questions, you know, why is there so much hate across communal lines? Why have we had so many cycles of violence? Why have we inherited this? And, uh, and so there comes a point where either you kind of give into it and empower a new cycle of violence and cycle of prejudice or you be that generation that brings it to an end uh, and actually starts looking for reconciliation and healing and justice and so that was Sri Lanka Unites' journey and we you know we said a new generation dares to unite uh, dares to think differently and um, that's similarly the story for other countries as well in the global unites movement we were born into conflict and violence and prejudice we just inherited this but we can be the generation that puts an end to it and, and, and brings about, or at least leads the way towards reconciliation and conflict transformation. That's fantastic. What are the things that you've noticed that have been unique to the Sri Lankan context? But also maybe, what are some of the things that you found that were born from insights in the Sri Lankan context that you found to be surprisingly universal? Well, I'll start with some of the universal things is that in any, any conflict, you find that violent extremist groups target young people. When moderate society would spend their attention more on adults, whether it's politicians will focus on adults because that's where the votes are. Corporate society, corporate world focuses on adults because that's where the money is and that's where they spend. Uh, But when you look at extremist groups and violent groups, they spend 100% of their attention and their efforts on recruiting youth. And and that's where they're energized to start um, a rebellion or violence or action against the supposed enemy. And so we saw that, how they manipulate young people, how they use their misfortune, the fact that they were born into poverty, the fact that they were born in the midst of a lot of injustices and grievances. And they would try to point all that hatred towards their enemy and use young people for their agendas. So that's, we're seeing it, whether it's in Congo or Myanmar or, you know, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, that's, that's not very different. It's the same reality. Uh, but at the same time, some of the things that are obviously different is the historical context in which conflict, violent conflict emerged. And so that differs whether it's religious conflict or ethnic or tribal or uh, sectarian violence, whatever it is. 
the origins of the conflict may be different, but the way they preserve violent conflict, they preserve the prejudice and the hate and violence, those, those techniques and focus on youth, that's, that's pretty much the same across the board. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. I mean, so this gives to me special resonance um, because your organization focuses on youth and focuses on youth transforming conflict into peacemaking and peace building. Can you say more? Um, I mean, now that you've mentioned some of the strategy of ex- extremists, um, but can you say more about what you think it is particularly that youth bring to the work of reconciliation and peace building? Well, first of all, what we, I jokingly tell people when they ask me, what do you do? Uh, what's your profession? What's your vocation? I say, well, I'm in the mining industry. And they like, so what do you mine <laughs> for? And like, is it gold? Is it silver? Or if it's blue sapphires or diamonds? And I always answer, say, no, it's something way more valuable than that. And that intrigues people. Say, what can be more valuable than this? And well, I said, it's, it's young leaders, young talent. Uh, it's like diamonds in the rough in some of the most brutal and unfortunate circumstances in the world some of these countries uh, there are young people, a new generation who are born into it who have an amazing resilience and a capacity to hope when there doesn't seem to be reason to hope and an ability to persevere when giving up seems to be the easier option an ability to be creative when that doesn't seem to be a path for your creativity to lead to anything. Uh, the ability to lead when you know you're putting your life on the line. There's no accolades or no gifts and awards and praise for you. It's just you're putting your life on the line for your generation, for your country, for your future, for your children's future. And so the, I think that's what's beautiful about it. You know, they, they, These people are born into it, but they know they deserve better. Their children deserve better. and They're willing to fight for it. I believe, I believe some of the greatest leaders of our time are in the midst of broken nations, devastated by corruption and poverty and violence. That's where there is an abundant grace. Uh, God didn't turn the other way. He anointed a generation within those ashes. And it's up to us to encourage them, affirm them, platform them, and support them as they lead and they inspire the world. So that's what our work is all about. I love that mining for young leaders, a thing far more valuable. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what this looks like, this mining that you do? Uh, How does that show up uh, both in Sri Lanka, but in other communities in your global network? Um, What are the actions of peace building? How are you equipping young people? And what are some of the challenges that you face? So what does the mining look like? Well, basically, what we try to do is in any context where you would assume the the reaction is, how do I get out of this country? Or the reaction is, how do I become more violent against this group? Or the reaction is, I just don't care, I've given up, and I'm done. I'm just trying to make a living for myself. But there is another reaction that is indicative of a strong leader. Somebody who has the ability to dream of a future that seems improbable. And not just dream about it, but communicate it eloquently in a way that awakens the conscience and the heart of a nation or their generation. And you see them. They're there and there. They may be, they may be students, student body presidents, maybe sports captains, maybe just a community organizer, maybe just a young kid in a youth group or whatever it is. You see that passion. You see that uh, desire and that tenacity and audacity to dream for something better. And uh, then you just have to make sure because before that child or that young person uh, gets jaded, 
or feels it's impossible or feels that they were let down. You need to get in when their their passion is raw and new and, and then support them to say, okay, how do you achieve this? How do you get there? What can you do? How do I introduce you to like-minded people in your own country? How do you guys create alliances to get there? And so that's kind of the, the work of it. So for us, you know, peace building is the way. We, we call it holistic peace building. It's not just trying to build bridges across enemy lines and, and stop reoccurring cycles of violence, but also trying to help them be people who transform society socially, economically, politically, culturally, that they, they talk about a new status quo, a new reality, and challenge the existing structures. And that's holistic peace building for us. So how do you get these nations, how do you get some of the best and brightest young leaders of these countries that desperately need leadership to lead now? Because whoever is leading right now in those countries haven't done justice to the nation. In fact, maybe the problem. So how do you empower that emerging generation of leaders to lead the way? That's fantastic. I think one of the things that Christian for Social uh, Christians for Social Action is very interested in is both the individual, but as well as the systemic transformation. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the hope that you see um, when young people get involved in the economic systems, that the political systems, or or whatever systems of society that they're part of, for this work of transforming conflict into peace building. Are there certain glimpses or stories that kind of go, ah, yes, this is what we hope to see more of? Yeah. So when people tell, question me on this thing, is it possible, you know, is this all wishful thinking? Uh, is it just like, you know, positive thinking, hoping it'll manifest? Uh, no, you know, it has happened throughout history. Uh, when you have had grassroots movements that have transformed their reality, despite all the insurmountable odds, they change their nation and change the world. And I'm not talking about illustrations and stories from thousands of years ago, whether it's a civil rights movement, whether it's a suffrage movement, whether it's the abolishment of slavery, whether it's the independence movement, the Gandhian movement, whether it's Mandela and the ANC. You know, they were, they were faced with unimaginable odds against them. There was no way they would have succeeded. But they organized themselves. They've, they've inspired the masses to create systemic change. And they knew that nothing but systemic change was going to be the sustainable answer. Uh, they were not trying to find band-aid solutions. They were willing to go the distance. They were willing to... And so I've been really studying this, and that's what my recent book is about, The Phoenix Generation. It's like, how did these generations just emerge out of the ashes? It has been done. And looking at what were the ways that they used to bring about change. And we find that there are four key things that you need in a society to bring about systemic change. One is you need engaged individuals, people who understand there's an issue, who are committed to be part of the solution, and who are willing to do whatever it takes. Now, you don't need 100% of the population to be engaged individuals. That's never happened in history. Social scientists now say it's about 35 to 5% of the population engaged is, is all it needs for social movements to be successful. Uh, Dr. Erica Chenoweth from Harvard University writes extensively about it. And my own experiences in a lot of these countries and a lot of grassroots movements indicate that, yeah, it's about 35 to 5% of the engagement. They know the issue. They know what their response is like. They're committed. They're willing to sacrifice. And they're going the distance uh, you know, and non-violently engaging. So, and then secondly, the second thing that really has helped movements succeed uh, to bring about systemic change is that they have had a political opportunity for change. Something happens in the political arena where there is a, a vulnerability in the establishment or the status quo. 
that's when you have to pounce at that opportunity to bring about that change. In all these moments, there was that moment and they were able to now, many people say, okay, we will mobilize ourselves when the moment comes, but if you're not ready, the moment will come and go in no time. And, and some effective movements have even been able to create political opportunity because of how well they've been organized. Thirdly, it's about um, having a very clear narrative, a very simple why that mobilizes people, a, a rallying call that everybody agrees on. Without complicating it with so many contentious issues, here's one thing we need. Here's what we're shooting for. And making sure that people can rally around that without complicating the narrative. Um, but at the same time, is organizational infrastructure. If you want it to be sustainable, the, the movement that's coming needs to show, here's what we want to replace, but we're replacing it with this. We have the infrastructure. We have built systems in place. And you cannot bring systemic change without introducing new systems. It's easy to question and challenge and criticize existing structures. But if you don't give an alternative, you're just barking and not able to make a difference. So how do you then eloquently and clearly describe your alternative? I think when those things come together, we have seen the unimaginable take place. Uh, change from grassroots to nations to world. You know, just one example, suffragette movement. You know, women were not allowed to vote in any nation in the world before 1931 or 1927. And not a single nation, every country agreed that women were not supposed to vote. They were not supposed to run for office. They did not have the capacity to lead at that level. That was the... But here's a movement of women in the UK and in the US who start this movement asking for the right to vote and the right to run for office. It seemed impossible. Men were not going to give away their power, and it seemed impossible. But they managed to inspire and awaken the conscience to a point that today, almost every nation in the world, women vote. Even in Saudi Arabia in 2015, every woman received the right to vote. Who would have thought it was possible? I, I appreciate the way that you've taken a very nebulous concept about peace building, something that people, I think, in our context, think of as a, a rather passive or more of a character development thing. And you've broken it down to help us understand the conditions in which sustained transformation actually comes about. That's that's really helpful. I know that um, your organization works with a plurality of different faiths, um, but that you yourself are informed in the work from your own Christian faith. Do you have any thoughts about what it is that you think that Christians particularly bring to the peace building um, or what it is that you think that churches, the role that churches may be able to play in, in this work? But so when I constantly ask, you know, what do I have to offer, not just as a person, but a person of Christian faith, uh, you know, I believe peace building is in the Christian DNA. Uh, we, we worship a God who we say, our Savior, who is the Prince of Peace. Uh, that was how he defined himself, what he was told, how we were told who he was 700 years before his birth. And Isaiah said, he is the Prince of Peace. And then when he preached in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, but they shall be called the children of God. He said, children of God engage in peace building. He called us to, to be light in society, to be the soul of the earth. And it's constantly in a broken place, in a devastated place, we were asked to be a healing joy love to our community. So this is not, I constantly say, not, this is not an extracurricular activity for Christians. This is who we were called to be. 
We're called to serve. We're called to be a bridge. We're called to reconcile society. And so we have to do it. And uh, sometimes we get comfortable within our own subculture. We get comfortable in doing certain things that we feel are the only things we should be doing. And we forget our role in society. And so we have to engage. And that's, that's something that propels me in, in this work uh, of knowing that this is not just something that I, I feel passionate about. This is not just something that I build skill sets and have experience in. This is also something very close to my own spiritual understanding and my own faith. Mm, that's fantastic. I think one of the things I, I appreciate about um, Christians and how, uh, how God shows up in the world is that there is this category of breaking cycles of violence and, and breaking these cycles that have been per- perpetuated within generations. And I know within our own context, that's some of what we're dealing with is um, cycles and cycles. Uh, of of violence and like like you said it, uh, as we started the conversation about folks who were born into situations um and so i think uh, that's part of the hope that i also find that christians bring uh, to the is is this understanding of a larger story uh, that is unfolding you recently released a book called phoenix generation can you tell us just a little bit about what it was that spurred uh spurred the idea for the book and what you hope folks get out of it? Sure. Yeah, I mentioned a little bit about the book, but what, what the reason the why behind writing this are a few reasons. One was um, when I was studying peace building at the University of Notre Dame, the Kroc Institute, um, my first, first semester, uh, my professor gave us all the textbooks for the year, and I noticed that there wasn't a single author from the Global South. Uh, and Ironically, most of the violence and the corruption and the brokenness that we're talking about in the peace-building world is in our part of the world. And, and he realized, well, when I questioned him on this, he said, yeah, I, 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 that's, no one's ever asked me that question. And he says, maybe, maybe you need to write. Because I believe that some of the best answers for us, context, come from within the conflict, within the pain, within the, within the trauma of what's happening. And uh, so we need to encourage people from our part of the world to write. So that was one reason. Of after 15 years of work as a peace builder in Sri Lanka and in four other continents, working with literally millions of youth, and had the privilege of engaging and sat down and started reflecting. You know, what have we learned? How can we share some of this uh, and reflect with others and further refine our own knowledge? So that was part of it. Uh, another clear part of it was also a, a desire to ensure that people understand that we're not trying to romanticize youth. We're not trying to romanticize grassroots movements. It can be done. It, it's, this is not, we're not going to sacrifice 15 years of our life for a pipe dream. This can be done. It's, it's, it's scientifically possible. It's, it's, it's legitimate. And, and so I want to prove that case, so that people start believing this is not just like a, you know, a feel-good, uh, around-the-campfire, kumbaya moment. We're talking about national transformation. We're talking about sustainable peace. We're talking about a generation transforming their nations and breaking cycles of violence. And these are not just big words. These are realities that we can accomplish. And that's what I wanted to share through the Phoenix Generation. Mm. You know, um, I don't know if this is true uh, beyond our context, but within our context, I think there are um, caricatures of the youth generation, uh, maybe mostly uh, uh, symbolized by engagement with social media or the creation of content that is... um, 
maybe not necessarily too much more of a purpose than building a person's brand or platform. What is it that you see in this generation that gives you such great hope? Yeah, especially when I talk about generation, is when I talk about a generation of young people who are born into conflict, violence, poverty, corruption, uh, and in countries that most of the world have written off as failed states or dictatorships or, you know, uh, countries that are never going to mount up to anything significant given what they've been through. Uh, in those countries, I see that generation of young people who have emerged out of that and who are doing exceptionally uh, well in their leadership, in bringing about change, their courage, their creativity, and so on. It inspires me no end. And I've seen that. I've spent time in Congo, in Liberia, Syria, Myanmar, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and all these countries, and I see that, that, that desire to want to bring about change and, and looking at things creatively, thinking outside the box, not not surrendering to the realities right now and uh, being willing to persevere. So those things, are the, that's what inspires me. But I also see it, also there are so many amazing attributes of young generation, even in the, in the Western world or in more developed countries, that there is a desire for justice. There is a desire for things to be, uh, for a restoration of a right relationship in society, that no one feels like they're second class or they're trampled upon. At least that as a generation, maybe this generation has more of that emotion, that feeling, that conviction than maybe generations before. And a desire to do something about it. Now, the stamina of which that desire is there is a question. We have to ask, do they have the stamina to really be passionate about it long enough to bring about change? That's to be seen. Uh, but, uh, but still, the desire for it and the commitment to it, I think it's, it's very special for this generation. Prasan, I know that uh, I am particularly intrigued by the Centauri movement. Uh, this idea that 100 years, uh, the anniversary of the independence of Sri Lanka, uh, this invitation and this call to a renewing of the society um, through a, a kind of reimagining what political engagement might look like and all that sort of thing. Can you, can you unpack for us a little bit of what this holistic picture that is being put forward um, as, as you're arriving at your 100-year anniversary? As a country? Yeah, it's looking at Sri Lanka at 100 years of independence and saying, what have we accomplished? What have we learned? How do we do better? And so my generation, we're all in our mid and late 30s, uh, started thinking of this conversation saying, well, we'll be in our 60s uh, when Sri Lanka has 100 years of independence or celebrates 100 years of independence. So the question was, you know, how do we work now to accomplish what we dream of then because by then it'd be too late for us so how do we start now and you can't take years of civil war corruption poverty failed structures and undo it in one election cycle it's going to require a generational effort it's going to require two and a half decades of serious work and so we started setting up real ambitious goals for sri lanka at 100 years uh, 10 milestones we want to accomplish and those ambitious goals can't be accomplished overnight. And so we, we've started off by creating a political academy for the next generation of political leader. We wanted them to be leaders of character, uh, character and integrity. We wanted them to be leaders who had a clarity and vision. We wanted them to be leaders of compassion. We wanted them to be leaders of competence. And if those four ingredients were within them, then they are capable of taking us to these ambitious goals. 
So this Project Academy was, we were, we were inspired when we just started off. It's like 52 weeks of learning, 700 hours of content we created on the practice and theory of policy and politics. How do emerging politicians build their skills, their competence, their knowledge uh, to be electable and to not just get elected, but then to effect change? Uh, after the academy, we realized, well, it's pointless having great leaders if the population doesn't vote for them. If they still vote on very naive and superficial things, then we're in trouble. So then how do we educate the masses? How do we communicate to them in a way that they understand and they're inspired and they change the way they think of the polls? So we started those initiatives of a nationwide campaign. But thirdly, we realized you can't, you know, the whole new wineskins and old wineskins concept, you can't bring about a change in political culture by going to the established political parties. Uh, they would eat you alive, you know, and you, we will become like them. Uh, we will be, we'll have to submit to their ways and their ways are the very ways we want to change. Uh, and so um, we decided, well, let's take the hard road here. Let's try and build something brand new. And it's impossible in most contexts, but we feel that if we do our, if we do our strategies and our campaigns right, people are open to change. And so we're launching on the 29th of April. Our party is going to go live. Uh, we're having a major launch, and we're sharing of why it's not just the birth of a political party. What we're saying it's the birth of a political culture, a new political culture. And we're hoping people will resonate with that, they will believe in it, and they will get involved. And so literally we're contesting from every electoral seat in this nation. Uh, and we, we will be the most diverse party in the country. Our party will have 50% women who are running for office, where the parliament only has 5% women. Um, our party will, every one of us will declare our assets publicly every year to show the people we are here to serve and not to steal. When only 10 out of 225 parliamentarians have declared their assets. Uh, our party will have, even though we don't have very strong campaign finance laws in this country, we will declare as a party every cent we've received and how we're spending it to show that we don't have any questionable corporates or international community trying to interfere with IFS because we're now indebted to them. So a lot of things, that's the beauty of having a new campus and starting a new. Like you can dream of these things, you can implement these things and no one's going to question you. That's what we want. Now, if I go to the establishment and I'll say, can you change these things? I'll get kicked out before I finish my sentence. So we're true. We're, we're trying. So it's a uphill battle. Uh, we'll wait and see how it goes, but we feel, we feel excited. And we know there are people who want change, and we, we think we can bring about uh, a pull a surprise. Prashan, well, we are excited with you, and I just think that there is so much that you all are innovating. It's both. I love how you are just embodying these values and moving forward in it in, as a way to be sort of this prophetic new vision. Um, and, and also a, how strategic that you've been, as well as the timeline. I think there's a way that you have, uh, your, your community has looked at the situation and you've recognized, oh, this is a generational problem, but we want to be that generation. It's so inspiring. There's so much that you're learning. I do hope that at some point, um, that that we we will be able to track and uh, and learn from these amazing things that you all are doing. But please know um, that your friends uh, are watching and cheering you on from the side as well. So thank you so much, Prashant Devisa, for joining us here on Twenty Minute Takes. Thank you, Nikita. Really appreciated our conversation, and thank you for your support. 
20 Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. We're produced and edited by David DeLeon. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and the music is done by Andre Henry. You can find us on the web at christiansforsocialaction.org. Give us five stars, write a review, and share about the podcast with your friends. 